Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So today's guest is Tarek Insfir, Head of Digital Engagement for EPAM Systems, looking after the EMEA region. Tarek began his career as a digital marketing entrepreneur. While studying at university, he built his first agency to 70 people within its first year. Tarek was also president of Bima and is a, an advisor to Adludio. In this meteoric rise, EPAM has approached Tarek about three years ago. He now oversees some extraordinary projects in his current role. So Tarek, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. Thank you. Good to be here. So I sort of just touched on your career and I spoke about extraordinary projects and I guess we can unpack what that means later on in the show. But can you tell us about that that rise and, you know, launching your own agency while still at uni and then, you know, everything else and whatever you want to include in between that? So I guess I was lucky as a kid, I grew up with a mum who was an entrepreneur and I got into putting computers together for some of her friends and to support her business and started earning a bit of a living when I was younger, doing some kind of IT stuff. And then I um, went to uni. Actually, sorry, before I went to uni, I joined Accenture on their Horizon program, which was basically like a year-long internship. And I got to work at the, the stock exchange and experienced my first kind of bout of kind of corporate life. It was definitely, I learned a lot and they sponsored me through university. And then when I got to uni, I was kind of, I got bored. I got bored really quickly. And so the first summer came round, and one of the guys who I'd built a computer for said, oh, we're building a website. We've got £20,000 to spend on a website. I'm like, really? How, how difficult can this be? So I put a few posters up. I was at Newcastle Uni, and I put a few posters up at Northumbria Uni, which is sort of famous for designers, saying you know, designers wanted £20 an hour. And a queue of 20-odd people turned up at my student flat. And uh, we pulled a pitch together. Some of them left when they realized that I couldn't pay them until we'd won the pitch. A couple of them stuck around. And um, they're still with us today. We, we went and we, we built this first website in our first summer at uni. And then the business didn't really stop after then. So we just basically kept going in between lectures and sort of built out pretty good business. And then when we left university, I... Um, sort of really decided to go for it, had to pay Accenture all of their sponsorship money back and um, use my student loan to buy some computers and get going and uh, and started Think. And uh, Think started working initially for Northern Rock and uh, we grew to yeah, run about 70 people in a year delivering all of the digital channels and platforms for, for Northern Rock. Wow. And what were you studying at university at the time? I was studying information systems, which was a kind of a hybrid of kind of computer science with a bit of business management and beyond. So it was, it was kind of relevant. And it was a bit of a um, rude awakening because in, in 2008, got a phone call from our customers at Northern Rock and he was distressed and the run of the bank started during the crash. And at the time, Northern Rock must, must have been around about 90% of our revenue, I think, and they disappeared in a fortnight. 
and um, we didn't squander all of the money that we'd made and came down to London and kept a lot of the team up in Newcastle and we started serving customers in London with a team in Newcastle. And do you think, you know, building an agency like that from such a young age, has that influenced the way you approach your current role? I think one thing for certain is when you start a business when you're younger, you don't quite, you're just so much more risk, or sort of less risk averse, apologies. And when you're less risk averse, you take bigger risks and with the work too, not just in the business. And I think it kind of, that confidence uh, shapes the way you might think about a client brief or a client problem. And we applied that. And that's kind of why, you know, when we came down to London, we took on an amazing piece of work for Booper, building out their entire digital strategy. It was a brilliant piece of work. We did some really innovative things with them. And then a friend of mine was doing some work for JK Rowling and they had this big global pitch being run for Pottermore, which was kind of the extension of the Harry Potter franchise that, that JK Rowling wanted to launch. And we just put a really gutsy strategy and, and plan together. And as the sort of smallest firm that had went for it, we won it and we beat some of the best agencies I would argue the best agencies in the country to it and started working directly for JK Rowling. She was in our office every couple of weeks as we were building kind of a Pottermore with her. It was a really cool experience. Would you say that's a career highlight then? It's one of them. I mean, it's not very often you get to do that. And, you know, Pottermore really opened up our eyes because on one hand, you have this kind of incredible property on which you can really sweat your creative muscles and do incredible things. But really, we really learned how to operate at scale then. We didn't realize just how much pent-up demand there was from the Potter fandom. And that, you know, it was a bumpy ride for a while, but what we produced was exceptional and the numbers were just off the scale. I mean, we were having literally billions and billions per day of interactions on Pottermore from fans across the world. So, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing being part of a journey like that. But then we went on to do other interesting work. We, for example, created Channel 4's first multi-platform drama with Utopia. And that one, you know, a BAFTA, it kind of won a couple of Grand Prix. And it was a really cool thing to do was to kind of marry a kind of traditional linear broadcast with a highly interactive, non-linear experience, which was one of the first of its, of its kind. And then we worked with the founders at Atom Bank to co-create the UK's first digital mobile bank. We kind of pioneered what biometrics, the use of digital biometrics would look like. This is way before kind of FaceTime and, uh, sorry, Face ID and others were, were in the place. And now it's kind of set the standard for what you see in most digital banking experiences. So yeah, there's been a few really interesting pieces of work along the way, I'd say, but Pottermore was definitely one of the highlights for sure. In those cases, do you sometimes say, let's say we can do it and then work out how <laughs> in the job or with these um, experiences that you, you know, had a good grip on? I think it takes you back to a question you asked before. I think that as an entrepreneur, you realize that you need to straddle a very delicate boundary between being 100% honest and clear about the capability you have now versus also projecting and making sure you're clear about the work you want to be doing. And if you have to do that in order to exhibit the, the confidence and open the doors to doing that kind of work. That's really where I think entrepreneurship and agency life come together in a very interesting way, because I think when you take risks, you take risks. And that also means doing something really bold with the work you're, you're proposing to your customers. Let's move on to actually what you're doing now at EPAM, you know, your role as the, the head of digital engagement. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails? 
Yeah, sure. So Think was acquired by just over three years ago. And the digital practice at, at EPAM basically spans everything from service design, creative strategy, digital marketing, lots of the typical agency services you would expect from a digital agency, but also goes through to all of the kind of technologies that touch the customer. So that's across content, commerce, CRM, Salesforce. We're about 16,000 people or so globally in, in the practice. In Europe, we're about one and a half thousand people or so uh, in America, I mean, and, um, and growing fast. It's a really interesting space because it's very rare that you can genuinely have such an incredible engineering capability attached to these kind of agency services. And when you learn how to really tessellate this and do something quite unique, I, I genuinely believe at EPAM we have quite a compelling proposition in the marketplace without some of the typical boundaries, multiple brand environments, the kind of the politics and the challenges that might come from other constructs. EPAM is a very entrepreneurial, organic environment that's really well suited for entrepreneurs. It's been a really interesting journey. I didn't think I'd be here for so long, but I can't imagine leaving right now. So, I mean, you must have had some interesting wins and some great projects that you've worked on while at your time. Can you tell us about some of those and, and some of like touching on the, the portfolio that you guys are building there? It's really broad and it's pretty exciting. You know, we're doing some really exciting work in, in the field of commerce, working for some of the biggest brands out there. EPAM is kind of exceptional at architecting, particularly Mac-based solutions, you know, microservices-led solutions, which is kind of really the focal point of most retail sort of technology-led retail transformations that are that are out there so we work with sort of a lot of brands you would sort of know and, and love ranging from kind of ultra luxury brands like burberry right through to highly functional brands like screwfix literally looking after a huge proportion of, of of commerce revenue and we do work in automotive so for example we're doing some really exciting work with ineos which we are launching the new grenadier the new four by four that was kind of the Land Rover kind of defender replacement that's been uh, led by a British entrepreneur, a really cool piece of cool piece of work. And then through to, for example, working with Bacardi on all of their digital marketing capabilities and, and supporting them with briefs around one-to-one -one marketing and beyond. And it's really kind of multi-sector. And one day we have a team of people who are working on an agri-tech kind of opportunity and the other day we're leaning into financial services on a new mortgages platform for a big bank you know it's pretty broad and within that there's been some really exciting work delivered and i think that's the key is our ability to to execute is phenomenal so it means you get to do work that really really lands on time delivers the results without all the kind of um, firefighting that would typically come in a in a more creative environment so when you're supporting the clients at epam when are you sort of brought into the picture? Oh, it's very, um, like I say, EPAM's quite a unique environment. There isn't kind of, it isn't a production line or a, a sausage machine. So we're involved right from the very beginning. So in fact, within the practice we have, whilst we work with our partners in these kind of business units who, who manage the individual customer relationships, it's a real partnership. So we span right from generating opportunities to co-creating the proposals, to obviously co-delivering these things with other practices and parts of EPAM. So it's it's very connected and it's a big part of our culture here. So no, it's right at the beginning. And then in terms of your, your strategy for growth at EPAM, can you give us like a high level overview? Are you, are you guys making, um, well, are you building some good partnerships? Are there any sort of important acquisitions that you've made recently? Yeah, it's, it's quite a lot. So EPAM is a fast growth business. We 
grew in the digital practice. We grew about 56% last year. Our overall corporate growth wasn't a mile off that either. And actually, e-com has been growing at that kind of rate consecutively for many, many years. So EPAM is a real growth growth business, and it's driven predominantly through our organic growth, our ability to hire the right teams in market with our customers and the right teams offshore to deliver the exceptional work that we do. It's really what makes us as impactful as, as we do. We really focus on build and transform work. We don't tend to focus on more kind of commodity-run work. So typically, people hire EPAM when they know that they have a complex period of change in front of them. They want the best engineers and designers and others in the picture to support them. And that's really how most of our business comes to us through through referral, through kind of ambitious leaders that really want a partner that's going to help them execute. That all said, we do make acquisitions and we'll continue to make a number of acquisitions. Yeah, I guess I'm asking some of the questions to sort of uh, try and get a good segue into the, the next topic I wanted to talk about. You know, one of the things I'm trying to focus on is your area of expertise are, I know EPAM is a global business but are you guys are you looking just at the UK and European markets as a focus area for you in terms of that growth well no not at all so actually our EPAM is a true global business so we the growth that you're seeing in fact our fastest growing region is APAC then Europe then the US and so we're truly global the only reason why many of my questions are quite EMEA focused is because I head up EMEA so it's kind of my home turf but no, the, the growth is very profitable. And, you know, I think that in this specific area that I think is super interesting, where we're really well placed, is in this field of where kind of content, experience platforms, data, that whole intersection of kind of the future of CX powered by data is something that we are incredibly well set up to go at. And so when you look at, for example, our partnership with with, with Sitecore and our ability to partner with Sitecore introduce our data practice who are literally i think some of the best data scientists in the world we can then leverage data connect touch points in super interesting ways explore the opportunities between paid owned and earned in the way that everyone's been trying to to drive towards and do really exciting work for our customers and i think within my group i think that's a big part of what's fueling our growth is we're earning a reputation on our ability to really orchestrate across all of these platforms like Sitecore and do something quite incredible from a customer experience or business results perspective. Yeah, I was going to touch on the customer experience theme. I mean, is that a big focus for you? Or you literally just said it is a big focus for you? Well, if you think about most of the technologies I described earlier and pretty much all in, in the spirit of it helping our customers drive a better CX, whether that's in content or commerce or, or our data platforms, it's all about fundamentally being able to, to provide a step change in, in CX. And so having the ability to go right from kind of strategy to, to the creative proposition, right through to execution and activation and all of those good things is, I think, what makes us so powerful in the marketplace. And to do so without some of the boundaries that you might normally experience in, in other global players, I think that kind of agility is really our, um, our secret source. You mentioned we've got a little bit of experience working with Psycho. I know they've got a big focus on personalization. And I wanted to find out, it's a term that gets thrown around quite a lot. What does it mean to you? What does personalization look like to you? I think that we've been talking about personalization, honestly, since I started my first agency, you know, so 22 years ago, something like that. And in many ways, 
the objective hasn't changed insofar as you drive a more meaningful experience for the customer, the business value and the customer value will, will flow. You see a lot of really interesting plays with personalization with what I'd call with a capital P, where the actual personalization runs deep into the product itself, for example. And that's clearly really rich opportunity for certain brands, particularly FMCG brands, but also service brands as well. And something that we're always on the lookout for is where personalization isn't just kind of at the channel layer, but actually goes right down into the heart of the value proposition of, of the business or the way that product is delivered. Beyond that, I hate to say it, but we're all still trying to do and execute on the same promises that we have been for 20 years. Because in reality, personalization technology and the expertise of those who are implementing it and running it and trying to execute it is only just really starting to get to a position of maturity where we can get beyond simple things like, you know, they visited us on this channel, so show this, or they looked at this product, so show these three products that might be relevant to them into actually building models in which we can truly understand the distinct needs of the individual and have the right tools, content, and beyond available to actually orchestrate something that is a lot more meaningful for the customer. So I think a lot of personalization leading up to now was very optimization focused. How do we optimize our business value? How can we improve our conversion rates? I think that piece by piece, we are starting to understand how to truly build far more personal experiences and in the truest sense and tell you what it's um pretty hard just imagine you know a bunch of designers who have been really really used to figuring out how different pages and modules and components come together to produce an excellent ux and we're then in a position where we're actually saying well actually this might only look this way for one single customer and so understanding how to design in that environment is actually pretty complicated, let alone understanding how to engineer and build the models that allow you to get there. But the likes of Sitecore and others, their capability is also improving by the day. And that allows us to kind of constantly raise the bar as towards, to, towards where we're trying to get to. It's tough. A lot of our customers will say, can you give me some examples of some businesses that are really nailing personalization? And the fact that so many of us are still scratching our heads and come up with the kind of the Netflixes and the Amazons, as an example, goes to show how much more we still have to do in this space. But although I sound like a skeptic, I'm actually an optimist here. I think that there's still an awful lot to get right in personalization. And I think as an industry, we will. And then are you doing anything with Cycle in that space in terms of personalization? Are there any notable uh, things that you're working on? Oh, absolutely. We've been doing personalization with Cycle for really quite some time. Some examples might be, for example, one of our key clients is a business called View Cinemas who have a big, big circuit of cinemas, both in the UK and in, in Europe. And when we first started working with View, they were sort of fourth largest or so from a market share perspective. And at the moment, they flip between first and second. And I'm not saying that was all down to us, but actually we built a strategy for them, all built around Sitecore with personalization at the center of it really understanding how we truly kind of drive a more meaningful engagement with their customers, but also fundamentally fill as many seats at the best price as possible. And Cycle was at the center of helping us understand preferences, propensities, and beyond. And the team at View did an exceptional job working on things like pricing strategies, 
and a dynamic pricing. And when that's twinned with all of the capability inside Cycle, we created a very, very compelling set of digital channels that, uh, in my view, set the bar for how to, to engage and deliver a CX to, to cinema goers. My view, I'm allowed to have a view, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and then we, in the sort of pre-interview, we chat a little bit about Omnichannel. And I think at one stage you referred to it as uh, the holy grail uh, for customer experience. Can you expand on that idea a little bit and, and tell us your sort of your views on that? It's kind of similar to personalization insofar as we've been talking about Omni for a long time. But I guess what's interesting is that Omnichannel, you know, we're still also not quite there yet. It is a holy grail, just like having a truly personalized experience is a holy grail. We definitely sort of, the, the, the previous narrative was businesses whose business model was kind of multi-channel versus omni-channel. In other words, does a retailer allow you to transact over many channels? Yes. Are they truly connected? And can you pick up from where you left off from one channel to the other? Yes. Okay, now they're omni-channel. But that narrative has kind of already moved forwards because the reality is, if you were just to look at, for example, retail now, marketplaces have become so prolific in retail that many, many retailers are now extending their products into numerous marketplaces. Then now lies a very complex kind of new channel to think about when you're trying to deliver an omnichannel experience with AI and more predictive models, with smarter call center technologies, with kind of this continuous push towards kind of digital uh, DMPs and CDPs. There's still so much to go at to get to the stage where you can really understand who the customer is on every channel and what they might want to do next. And it's not helped by the fact that the world keeps changing. And so when you look at, for example, what the intersection of Web3 and NFTs might be to retail as an example, and then, then you ask yourself the question, well, what does Omnichannel mean in that instance? Well, the game has changed, you know, yet again. So I think that it is, you know, it's the practice of trying to get everything joined up in the way that, that serves the customer in the first place and then obviously that should mean that it serves the business that's that's delivering the customer experience but it's forever getting more complicated and um it's also very very closely linked to the personalization topic we we touched on before to me they're very very closely nestled kind of topics and then you did mention it again there, but that sort of connection between the physical and digital world and then linking those experiences, that sounds like a challenging prospect. Is that something that you also provide help in? Yeah, 100%. It is a challenging prospect. We were really lucky that we, uh, at the same time, or just before when Think was acquired into EPAM, our CEO had the foresight to acquire a business called Continuum which was like a competitor to Frog. So very, very much focused on innovation, physical experiences, spatial design, physical product development. And they're now part of the practice that I lead in, in EMEA. And the ability to go from offline to online is central to that. It's a huge part of why I think we are a very well-placed omnichannel player. So we're working on, for example, numerous flagship stores or store of the future concepts at the moment i can't i don't think reference many of those customers at the moment because they're in development but we have done a fair amount in this space and will continue to from for example conceiving the future of curbside vending machines and what kind of distributed retail propositions might look like and testing those in the marketplace 
to truly understanding what the role of the store is in the future in a given sector or market or, or geography and building all of that connectivity from a digital experience perspective as well. So we, we for example, are working for a large fast fashion business at the moment, looking at everything from the in-store experience right through to the totality of the commerce strategy and how they build more meaningful customer engagement whilst doing both of those things. So that's the future of retail then. It's the future store building a different experience and then supporting that through all the sort of digital means that we as consumers are now heavily, I guess, engaged in. So the death of the high street is not on your radar then, you, you think, um, are you positive about? I think that the evolution of the high street is clear. I'm not necessarily saying that just because there are opportunities in the intersection between physical and digital from a retail perspective, the reality is the majority of retailers, high street retail footprints aren't really fit for purpose anymore. So it's definitely, in my view, kind of going to be the slow demise of the high street as we know it. But I don't, and I hope it won't be, the death of the high street in its future role as a hub for community, as a central point for all kinds of sectors to build meaningful experiences for their customers. This one's a a tough one. It's also quite a sad one, but I genuinely hope to see more and more retailers, consumer brands, service brands, B2B businesses starting to seriously not just talk about how they experiment with future propositions on the high street, but actually get on and and do it. Otherwise, you know, it's going to hurt us. I agree. You know, I think that experience needs to stay on the high street and um, it's, it'll be exciting to see what brands do. Definitely looking forward to it. But it sounds like you guys are well-placed for all of that. So I'll definitely be following uh, Tarek, your the career and the projects you're working on. Sorry, just to go back to a customer experience, because that's what the show is about and the theme of the show, at least. But you, you mentioned AI and machine learning within customer experience. You know, how conducive is the current landscape to data collection to enable, you know, slick AI and ML to, to do its job for us? So, you know, if you think about it today, we've talked a lot about personalization. We've also talked about omnichannel and it, the kind of the critical success factor in both of those things is A, having the data available and then B, being able to compute and analyze the data and build the models on top of it that allows you to do more meaningful and drive more meaningful interactions with customers. Technology around data has improved so much in the last five years. In many ways, the technical feat of bringing the data together isn't the challenge. It tends now fundamentally to be understanding where you stand from a regulatory and compliance perspective, especially for international businesses, is a real, like, very, very complicated. And yes, of course, GDPR is a huge part of that, but there are so many other things to think about. So putting the data together is now a lot more technically feasible than it has been before, but operationally, quite rightly, has a great deal more compliance and regulatory kind of needs attached to it. But essentially, in my view, it is we are already in a position where we're at maturity with a bit of effort to pull together any data that you technically might want to make a to drive a more meaningful customer experience. From an AI and ML perspective, again, the technology is there. The challenge really is about kind of closing the gap between the designers and the creatives and the marketeers who are really trying to understand the consumer and what they're looking for, and the data scientists and the technologists that partner with them. And it really requires kind of such a a feat of kind of lockstep collaboration and understanding that what you see is that in some of the most mature digital native businesses, 
take some of the social media platforms or beyond, they've achieved that kind of lockstep from the off natively. It's the core of their business. For many other businesses, it's still, you know, somewhat on the hit list. They're investing in it, but they haven't necessarily industrialized the way that you truly kind of bring your CX, your digital marketing, your overall kind of engagement model together with the data teams. Again, I think we're in a super exciting moment where we're seeing our customers genuinely implant the right skills and capabilities in the right place in order for them to achieve it. Unfortunately, like everything else, the next wave of technology and disruption would also make the job even more interesting, (laughs) even more complicated. It's kind of why 20 years on, I'm still doing the same thing because it's the same theory, but the practice is evolving year in and year out. And that's actually what makes, I think, our industry as exciting as it is. So we've spoken before about customer expectations and uh, we know these are shifting or have shifted quite dramatically. I wanted to ask, in your experience looking after sort of, you say, the European region, are there any notable differences between, you know, UK business or UK customers versus Benelux customers or versus Nordic customers or are businesses and um, are we all in the sort of same level playing field or are there any notable differences in the cultures, I guess, is the, the simple question? Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. I think if you'd have asked me this question a few years ago, I would have probably pointed out quite significant changes in behavior, mostly because some of continental Europe were kind of waiting for consumer demand for self-serve and digitization and commerce models to become evident before all of the industry started making their investment and doing it. And then it snowballs, right? Because then it's it becomes kind of table stakes, but it hadn't quite become table stakes. But the pandemic eradicated that gap. I mean, it's gone. Like everyone has either caught up or is catching up. So then of course there are some cultural nuances. The way we serve our supermarket clients in the UK is very different to how we might be servicing our supermarket customers in Scandinavia, for example, there are just different attitudes to home delivery services. So in some European markets, it's very much focused on a curbside collection premise rather than a delivery promise. And that's because that's what's kind of evolved. You know, these are subtle things. So the reality is, I don't think when it comes to digital channels and, and expectations for what how digital channels and digital CX should be delivered, that there really is a profound gap anymore. And I think what's also uniting us is that the younger generations who have greater social consciousness have a greater viewpoint on what they believe uh, should shape shape the world are becoming more influential and i'm really pleased that that's the case to be honest i wish the rest of us would catch up and that kind of you know that that's probably for me going to be the center point of cx is genuinely understanding how to deliver cx for good and whilst there are a few notable examples there aren't anywhere near enough of them and um, I certainly hope that that is going to congest my inbox for many years to come. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you think that will affect your strategy going forward? Well, EPAM is a, already a pretty low-carbon business, if that makes sense. We deliver services. Yes, we've got some servers and some carbon to offset, which we have a clear plan to do. The reality is, I think that we need to try and get ourselves into the middle of more meaningful projects and work where we have ambitious customers who have, you know, the complex, who have a complex environment where they want to overcome their impact to the world. Because I think we're really incredibly well-placed to do that. So um, to my view, I think we are well-placed. 
we need to make sure that our customers are ready to really lean into this. And I, I'm hoping that as we emerge from the recovery post-COVID, hopefully if the markets, you know, remain as buoyant as they have been, give or take a kind of a the odd wobble here or there, I'm hoping that there will be the right investment appetite for people to really set an example of what CX for good really looks like. So it's a hope. I hope it happens. Me too. So before we move off the topic of customer experience, are there is there anything that's not been spoken about enough or are there any themes around customer experience which you don't think are getting enough attention? You know, interestingly, I think loyalty is having its a new kind of, is entering its kind of next level. Again, heavily intersected with personalization and with Omni and all of those other good things and also powered by data. But I definitely think that loyalty is going through some serious kind of redefinition at the moment. We're seeing that a lot of traditional loyalty programs, as we would have once defined them, points for prizes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they they are nowhere near as effective as they once were. And loyalty has become this kind of battleground for understanding how you mash together your sense of place in community, people's affiliation and association and want to be part of your brand and of your movement combined with understanding what the new motivations are, whether it's a price sensitivity or, or a pricing strategy, understanding what's going to keep consumers coming back and spending more is right up in the air at the moment. And it's an exciting place that crosses kind of many other topics. And it's something that has us at EPAM particularly energized at the moment. In fact, we're building an entire practice around it at the moment, just because we think it's really ripe. So I'd say that was a pretty interesting topic for CX. And then for sort of, I guess, CX leaders, aspiring CX leaders, or people working in the digital space, any sort of um, bits of advice that you can impart on them? I would always say challenge the why not, if that makes sense. In other words, always challenge with why not. I think that you will, especially as you come into the industry, you'll always hear reasons why you can't achieve something, why something's too difficult, why regs won't allow you to achieve something, why technology is getting in the way to doing these things. The truth is it just needs a bit of a pioneering mindset and spirit. So I would just say my advice would be kind of hold on to that fight for the idea, fight for the difference that you think that you really can make and explore how it can happen because many others have done just that. And without enough of those kind of pioneers pushing and belligerently saying, why not? We won't make a difference. So that I think that would be my piece of advice, yeah. That's a, a pretty solid piece of advice. Thank you, Tarek. So we've come really to the sort of the end of the business side of this interview. There's a lot of things that we probably could have spoken about at length. But, you know, in the interest of time and getting to the next section, uh, we're going to we move on to the, the sort of more human round, if you will. So we'll get to know a little bit more about you. I'll throw some questions at you. Just answer them. Um, you know, first thing that comes to head, the top of your head, sorry. And, uh, yeah, we'll hopefully get to know a little bit more about you at the end of this. So do you have a guilty technology pleasure? Guilty technology pleasure. Well, it's Beat Saber on my Oculus. I just can't put it down. So... Often when my wife thinks I'm up here in the study doing work and she hears me banging around the place, she realizes I'm back on the Beat Saber. So um, I don't know why it just got me hooked. So I tend to uh, to have a good round round again. What is that? Ignorant to the Oculus at the moment. It's a VR game where boxes are flying at you and you've got two lightsabers 
and you have to slice the boxes in enough pace, but it's to dance music. And so it makes you effectively smash these things in line with the beat of the music, if that kind of makes sense. It's quite addictive, or at least I think it is. And a bit of a workout, so. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you touched on, on your wife there, but what does your wife think you do versus what your friends think you do versus what your say your boss thinks you do? Well, you know, I met my wife at work, so she knows pretty well thankfully which means that she's quite pathetic because we have a, a one-year-old a five-year-old and a seven-year-old and so um she's very very patient and uh, picks up the slack at home which I'm, I'm very grateful for i hope that my boss knows what i do i think he does i actually think that from that perspective my boss and my wife have a pretty good read on what i do my kids on the other hand absolutely no idea i mean i have no idea what they think i do i think they think that I effectively just spend my whole day talking to people. And that's my job, just talking to people, which you can understand, right? They come up every now and again, and all I'm doing is talking to people. And then do you have any essential desk item that you just can't live without? I don't. The one thing I have is I've always got something smelling nice happening, going on in the study, because I always find that when the room smells good, I'm in the right mood to concentrate. So the one thing I do is I've always got some kind of aromatherapy going on. And then are you reading any good books at the moment or, or watching any good series on Netflix or Prime or whatever? I just finished um, Clara and the Sun, which is really quite enchanting. It's a book about an AI that um, goes from being sold in a store to, to joining a family. And it's quite a charming kind of perspective on AI. I loved it. So um, I would definitely recommend it as a read as bang on for me kind of close enough to reality nice bit of kind of futurism involved but also quite a cool human story so yeah it was a good read okay i'll make a note of that and then when was the last time you were inspired by say a business event or maybe an inspirational speaker i've been lucky enough to hear a whole bunch of different people speak at different events i'll be honest uh, it's obviously been a while. I love going to physical events. And so I, I'll be honest, like, it has been a little while. So I, I'm going to pass on giving you anything meaningful there, I think. Yeah, all good. Talking, are you going to any physical events in the sort of next month or two months? I was going to go to South By, but the timings didn't work out for me because I, I do love heading that way. It's a good time and I learn loads. But I haven't got anything planned, actually, in the next month. Not a big event or conference type event. And then I guess the, the other question, which I think I've been asking guests more and more of, because this happened uh, to me the other day, but have you had a, any like moments where, you know, your heart, because of a business, maybe a challenge or an opportunity, you know, something exciting or something that, that you've been dreading? When was the last time you felt that? You know, when have you struggled to sleep because of a, a work anxiety or, I guess, excitement? I think that I have been super conscious of work-led anxiety in myself, for sure, but also in my colleagues recently. It's amazing. It keeps coming back. You can just see it in other individuals when they've just been at their desk for too long, they've been disconnected. It plays perhaps to some of the things that they needed to kind of address for themselves anyway. And I think now more than ever, I'm just so conscious of the impact that the current way of working, but also people's roles when they're so kind of glued to their screen and they're not getting the same releases as they were before. 
that's probably what has me the most anxious is making sure that others aren't and that we're looking out for one another. It's been pretty tough, for, I think, for a lot of people. So hopefully we can move on and make everybody's lives a bit better, you know? Are you guys going into the office at all? Yeah, our offices are now. How has your office culture changed? Well, it's turned into more of an event-based culture. I think everyone will say the same thing. So typically certain days people are coming in. I don't know where we are right now. I'm about to head in actually this afternoon. I think that we hadn't quite rediscovered the role of our office before Omicron hit. But I think there's a lot of ambition for people to get back together and reconnect physically. Let's see where we end up. But it's definitely going to be more event-based. That's clear. Okay, Tarek, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. If you like this episode, please do like and subscribe wherever you get your, your favorite podcasts. And be sure to look out um, for some of the content that CEO.digital will be producing along with EPAM and Sitecore. And please do reach out to us um, if you'd like to learn more. But Tarek, thanks again. Thanks, great. I've loved speaking to you and learning from you. Cheers. Goodbye, everyone. Mm-hmm.